Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Harry and Meghan go head-to-head with William and Kate. A trauma specialist recovers from interviewing Harry, and the royals respond to the crisis in the Middle East. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Chief Royal Correspondent, and this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the show. Harry and Meghan visited New York for World Mental Health Day at the same time as William Kate did a series of similar visits in Britain last week. Now, nobody owns this subject, of course, and both couples have every right to campaign on it, but one issue that caught my eye. So, in her speech last week, the Princess of Wales kind of airbrushed Harry out of a key piece of royal history. And I want to really look at that because I do think it's important. Um, So there was a brief window when we all believed that these two royal couples would make for a really great partnership. And an early example of this came with the Heads Together campaign in 2017. Um, This was about trying to pull together a number of mental health charities and create some energy behind the idea of changing the conversation on mental health and creating the space for people to share their emotional difficulties. Um, It was before Meghan's time as a working royal, but Harry was very much a key part of this. And Kate kind of neglected to mention that when she spoke about it on Tuesday last week. Um, In fact, anyone who didn't already know that Harry was involved would probably come away feeling like he wasn't, like it was a Kate and William specific project that hadn't included him. Um, So here's what she said. Of course, reach your own conclusions. Disagree with me if you want to. But this is what Kate said. William and I are absolutely delighted to be with you in Birmingham on World Mental Health Day for our Royal Foundation Youth Forum. Mental health is something we both care deeply about. Back in 2016, we launched Heads Together, a campaign supported by so many wonderful partners that helped break the stigma around mental health and encouraged more people to have everyday conversations about it. Alongside the efforts of many others, we have seen real change. Today, more people feel empowered to talk about their mental health than ever before. This is a major step forwards. Now, I could overlook this if Harry's involvement had been a little less high profile, but actually Harry's intervention was kind of the most headline-grabbing event of all three royals. Um, And now this whole thing completely dominated the news cycle back in 2017. Um, Kate mentions 2016, that was when Heads Together was first launched, but its big, big, big push came in 2017, round about the time of the London Marathon that spring. And now this was the first time that Harry spoke 
properly in depth about his grief for his mother. Um, he hadn't done that before. Neither had William in that kind of outpouring of emotion since. It was approaching the 20th, 20th anniversary of Princess Diana's death, uh, which was later in the summer. And then William and Harry both did lots of interviews for two major documentaries, a BBC one and an ITV one. And also Harry did an exclusive interview with Newsweek, in fact. Um, but this was before all that had happened. So this was spring and Harry did an interview with Brioni Gordon, who runs a mental health podcast for the Daily Telegraph. And he acknowledged getting therapy publicly for the first time. He talked about his struggle working and his unruly, as in working as a royal, you know, doing these uh, events where he has to meet people, his unresolved anger, sometimes feeling like he wanted to punch someone. He said he took up boxing because that seemed to help. Um, and this was all in the days when royals just didn't really do this kind of thing. So nowadays we're obviously quite used to Harry absolutely pouring his heart out. But this was unheard of at the time. And so he was on all the front pages and it was massive. And it was also quite interesting because Meghan being kind of outside the fold, but on her way in would have witnessed this whole thing happening from afar. And I always actually thought that this was probably part of how Meghan wound up getting the wrong end of the stick about what being a royal, working royal is actually like, because one of the first things she saw in the earliest days of her relationship with Harry was this incredibly high-profile, very impactful campaign that was in reality like quite a long way away from the mundane reality of like unveiling plaques and cutting ribbons, which is another aspect of what the royals sometimes do. But anyway, that is a sideshow. Um, what struck me uh, about Kate's words was she placed so much emphasis on the impact that Heads Together had without really referencing Harry's part in it. Now, obviously, she says that Heads Together helped break the stigma around mental health. But a big part of the way it did that was by Harry discussing his own mental health crisis. The message was supposed to be everybody has mental health, you know, even the royals. So like anybody can have a mental breakdown. Anybody can have anxiety. Uh, anybody can, you know, experience depression, even somebody in this lofty position that Harry has. And they kind of really showed that this was true by Harry putting his head above the parapet and talking about his grief and talking about his trauma. Uh, it served as visible proof um, that, you know, anybody can struggle no matter what your place in society. Now, there's a saying in fiction, which I think is just as true in PR, which is show, don't tell. So what that means is don't kind of just tell people what you want them to think or what you want them to know or what you want, want them to understand about the world. Show them. Um, people hate being told what to do. They hate being told what to think. They can very easily ignore it. Um, they can even attack the person telling them by saying, well, you know, you shouldn't be going on about this from your ivory tower. The best thing you can do is you can just show them. And so Harry is standing up and talking about his own pain, delivered this message about the universality of mental health in a way that cannot be done simply by telling people that it's beneficial to talk. You know, he appeared to be quite visibly showing emotion, talking about his feelings and engaged in a process of healing as a result. Now, to give an example of this, one of William's major interventions at the time was an interview for a charity called Calm, which is the campaign against living miserably, which works to reduce male suicide. And he said, there may be a time and a place for the stiff upper lip, but not at the expense of your health. 
Um, now, that is a perfectly valid and even an eye-catching statement from a member of the royal family. Um, after all, you know, the royals are, of course, famed for their stiff upper lip. Um, however, at the time, it was received as William backing his brother's decision to open up and standing shoulder to shoulder with Harry, side by side during this moment of vulnerability for his brother. So if you take Harry out of that picture, the statement loses a lot of its emotional impact and resonance. It's still a valuable lesson, you know, obviously, it's still interesting to see a royal family member say that, you know, to stiff up a lip shouldn't come before your mental health, but it doesn't catch the reader in the chest to the same extent if it's not a case of William kind of supporting his brother's vulnerability. So for me, it really shouldn't be too much to give Harry the credit where it's due. And to be honest, it shows strength and self-assuredness, I think, to be able to do that. So whereas if you leave Harry out and you kind of airbrush some of his achievements out of the history books, it kind of looks petty, especially because awkwardly for Kate and for William, you know, actually the Heads Together website hasn't airbrushed Harry's contribution to the campaign and in fact still lists like the top five things he did as part of it. So anybody who might be confused on the subject can Google it and then Heads Together kind of offers all of this stuff which they were boasting about at the time. You know, the Heads Together campaign was boasting about the impact of Harry's work on it back in 2017 before everything disintegrated. And the whole thing just kind of got me thinking about something that's sort of lurked in the back of my mind a little bit, actually dating back to this exact period and this exact campaign back in 2017, because it was hugely impactful. It really did genuinely get everybody talking about mental health differently. And yet, I also felt then, and I kind of still feel now, that I see a lot of people in my personal life trying to be better trying to talk more emotionally than they did when you know when we were all younger i am after all of william harry kate and megan's generation and you know we weren't brought to talk, brought up to talk about our feelings in the same way but and you know i don't want to sound pessimistic here you know actually no matter how excellent this work was on mental health this generation of royals have been excellent on that but I think the rewards of this period are going to be felt more by the next generation than by our generation. Because, you know, I see a lot of people of my age, especially men, in, you know, maybe it's a conversation on WhatsApp or it's a conversation on Signal or somewhere else. And people will say they want to offer help. You know, people will say, okay, you know, this person's struggling clearly. And everyone will come along and say, give me a call anytime you want, you know, just ring me up. I'm always here. I can always talk about it. And I see so many offers and so little take up of those offers. And I think the reason is because men of my generation don't have that psychological toolbox to actually be able to share and talk about their emotions in a constructive way. And, um, you know, I'm as, I'm as bad as anyone. You know, I, I have offered help many, many, many more times than I've ever taken it up. And a lot of conversations about mental health among men, I'm struck by how hard we all still find it to meaningfully share without people just basically saying what they consider to be the right thing. So even that offer of help is kind of like just trying to say the right thing. Um, and like sometimes talking about your emotions is really messy and like awkward and uncomfortable. And men still just kind of say 
you still take refuge in saying what you're supposed to say. And that means that even when you're trying to do the whole emotional sharing thing, you're not actually sharing because what you're doing is you're expressing platitudes. So to bring it all back to the royals, I guess what I'm saying is I kind of feel like this generation of the royal family is one that's fallen apart. You know, William, Kate, Meghan and Harry could not resolve their differences. And there may be all kinds of reasons for that. Um, you know, Harry and Meghan took their difficult, or perhaps took their difficult feelings out on their staff. That's certainly the accusation that's thrown at them. And maybe they deny it. Um, but, you know, William maybe blamed the first woman of colour to marry into the royal family in modern times. Maybe he couldn't forgive if she had done something wrong. Maybe Harry and Meghan couldn't apologise, you know, whatever. I'm not actually necessarily trying to definitively answer or solve that debate. But my point is, whatever happened, they didn't solve their differences. Um, And the main example Harry gives in detail for trying to resolve things with William turned into a physical fight in which he was thrown into a dog bowl. And Meghan told Oprah she went to HR saying she was struggling emotionally and wanted to seek professional help by going somewhere, she said, which um, certainly Oprah seemed to uh, interpret as a kind of mental health ward, perhaps. Um, And she said she was told that this would make the monarchy look bad by, by senior palace staff. Um, And, you know, on the flip side as well, Harry and Meghan, having said so much about how damaging um, the media was and criticisms in the media were to their mental health, then turned around and and levelled criticisms against Harry's family. So obviously that potentially has a knock-on effect for mental health too. So there is very little in how this story all played out that serves as a kind of best practice for how to solve complex problems that have an emotional backdrop for the people involved. And in fact, it's probably best viewed as a cautionary tale about what not to do. So if you're Prince George or Princess Charlotte or Prince Louis or even Archie and Lilibet, uh, the best thing they can do now is look at the generation that came before them as a warning about what not to do in the future. And, you know, it's it's kind of almost quite symbolic that here you have these two couples, Harry and Meghan, you know, big visit to New York. Uh, it's like a fantastic job for them. They went, they talked about the impact of online harm on a younger generation of children. Uh, Meghan looked great in her outfit and, um, you know, there were great pictures to come out of it. They also visited a school that that seemed to go very well. Uh, William and Kate did some fantastic jobs in Britain again. Kate looked, I thought, phenomenal, actually, on the job she, in the job she did on the Wednesday. Um, but, like, isn't it kind of symbolic that they're on different sides of the world, in completely different continents doing all this? Like, it kind of is testimony, that division and that physical geographical distance is kind of symbolic of how much has been lost and how much has fallen apart because they couldn't resolve the underlying emotional conflict and trauma that existed between the two couples. And on that note, I'm going to take a quick break. But before I do, don't forget to rate and review The Royal Report on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favourite shows. And when I'm back, interviewing Prince Harry had some rather unfortunate knock-on effects for a author and trauma specialist. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. 
Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Now, the, and I quote, demeaning and dismissive reaction from the British press to a major interview done by Prince Harry in the aftermath of his memoir spare has left his interviewer with some big regrets, it would seem. So Dr. Gabor Mate interviewed Harry in March. This was two months after spare hit shelves in January. Tickets were somewhere in the kind of ballpark. I mean, I bought mine from Britain. It was 20 quid, so probably like $25, $30, something like that. Um, But you got a free copy of Spare for your troubles. Seven months later, Matte has done a podcast interview with a UK entrepreneur called Stephen Bartlett. Um, So this is a new episode of the Diary of a CEO podcast, and it was released on Thursday. Matte is a specialist in trauma And it looked like he was so distressed by the media reaction to the Harry interview, they basically sounded like he could use a little bit of his own therapy. He said he was described as a stern, overbearing merchant of pain and added that it was for the most part so negative and so demeaning and so dismissive and so distorted that I barely even know how to talk about it. I thought by this age I would know better, but you know what? It really got to me. It really got to me. That's what he said. Um, And sounds almost like a trauma response of its own. Um, It was not just the media reaction, though. Mate also felt he lost himself by agreeing to the terms of the interview. Namely, that viewers had to effectively buy a copy of the book in order to join, and no free version was made available afterwards. So the, the... Lack of a free version afterwards, I think, was basically because they had promised people who were paying that it was a one-off opportunity, you know, like, this is your only chance, so pay your money. And once they'd done that, they couldn't then release it for free afterwards, or they would have been reneging on their original commitment. And so this is what this is what Matte said about it. I had a gut feeling all along that I shouldn't agree to doing it the way they set it up. The way it was set up was, in order to watch it, people had to buy a copy of Harry's book. And I thought, this is not fair. Four million people have already bought the book. Why can't they watch this interview? Do they have to buy another copy? In other words, I believe that this should be a free public service on a part of two people who can have a very interesting conversation. But out of sheer opportunism, I agreed to it. So I didn't follow my gut feelings. I lost myself even in agreeing to the format. I agreed to something that I didn't really like, he added. Not that I didn't like the idea of talking with him, that's Harry. I didn't like the idea of putting this behind the paywall, so I lost myself just in agreeing to it. For what it's worth, I think the main beneficiaries of that system were probably the friends of journalists who had to wind up buying a second copy and would have given it away for free. Uh, That's certainly what I did with mine. Um, Now, this is something that does happen every now and again 
in the modern era of the monarchy, uh, which is just highly charged. It's been highly charged for quite a long time now, for some years. And what will often happen is someone basically comes along and decides with good intentions that they want to get involved with Harry and Meghan and just doesn't realise that everything Harry and Meghan does, everything they do, gets instantly jumped on. And often the way it functions has a significant cultural dimension to it. So Gabriel Mate is just not a Daily Mail person. Nothing about him is a Daily Mail person. He might even be kind of too far left for The Guardian, possibly. Um, but he would certainly fall more neatly into Guardian land than into Daily Mail land. And in fact, he actually indicated during the interview that he didn't support the war in Afghanistan, which prompted the slightly strange response from Harry that many, many soldiers neither support nor opposed the war. So that was kind of like a, a kind of perfect moment to sum up this cultural schism because Harry clearly realised in that moment that he had to make it really clear that he neither supported nor opposed the war in Afghanistan because if he said he supported it, then he would be clashing with Mate. But if he said he opposed it, then he would be jumped on by the mail and other newspapers and accused of then having, you know, well, they could either have accused him of siding with the Taliban or perhaps they could have accused him of betraying himself if he says he opposed it. You know, why did you fight if you opposed it, etc., etc., etc. So the fact that Harry gave this kind of like really bizarre answer that was wedged in between a rock and a hard place was that kind of like a perfect symbol of just what Mate didn't quite realise he was walking into the middle of. But obviously, in case it doesn't need, in case it needs stating, it probably doesn't, but in case it does, uh, in Daily Mail land, the war in Afghanistan, which appeared at the time to dismantle Taliban rule, only temporarily, of course, because they, they're back in power now, uh, the war in Daily Mail land was not the problem. Daily Mail land, the problem was actually the Western withdrawal from Afghanistan that left ordinary Afghans at the mercy of the Taliban. And the news newspaper stance on Mate was it was really clear before the interview even started. They did this. I, I went back and actually dug it out. They they did a preview piece on it, which I'm going to quote at length just to give a proper indication of kind of the full scale of what they threw at Mate, rightly or wrongly. Some people might agree with them, to be honest with you. Uh, he's got very particular opinion, opinions on sub subjects, which won't necessarily be to everybody's taste. But this is what they said about him anyway. Self-help guru Gabor Mate has compared the murderous terrorists of Hamas to the Jewish heroes who rose up against the Nazis in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1943. He has contributed to a pro-Kremlin website that defends brutal regimes around the world. He has rushed to defend Jeremy Corbyn, that's the former leader of the Labour Party, um, from charges of anti-Semitism, and he has even spoken warmly of the spittle-flecked Pink Floyd star and alleged Putin apologist Roger Waters. So for all that he styles himself an expert in toxic trauma, critics insist that Dr. Mate, a best-selling writer and fervent advocate for drug legislation, knows a few things about being toxic himself. Now, it's worth noting that Mate, he's a Hungarian-Canadian, he's a Holocaust survivor, and his maternal grandparents were killed at Auschwitz when he was a five-month-old baby in 1944. So, some important context there. Now, I want to leave aside most of the substance of this broadside against him because there's just so much in there. Um, to get stuck into it would involve unpacking like quite a large number of potentially quite controversial issues that really are actually nothing to do with the royal family, and this is primarily a royal family podcast. Um, however, I think what's quite interesting is how immediately, instantaneously obvious it is that somebody like Mate would be a terrible match for the Daily Mail. 
Now, Harry is a terrible match for the Daily Mail too. They obviously hate each other. So there are, because Harry is very un-Daily Mail these days, there are all these people out there who might be quite a good match for Harry, but if they're not a good match for the Mail, then there's going to be a problem. So it's kind of like having a toxic sibling who you hate, but also you have to introduce to all your new friends. So... Anytime Harry wants to partner with a new person or a company or a charity or whatever it might be, he has to expose them to the potential onslaught from the Daily Mail, which comes with everything he does. Um, So the Daily Mail obviously hates the person that Harry's become since he quit the palace. And so therefore, it's not intuitively that of a surprise that they're also going to hate a lot of the people that he likes because you know they kind of hate him and he hates them so obviously if somebody's like-minded with him then they're probably not gonna be seeing the world through the daily mail's eyes so anybody he wants to make friends with as soon as he opens the front door it's like vroom up pops the mail with its boxing gloves on and its gum shield in ready to fight a culture war with them um now obviously it's a free country and everyone has to, the right to say their piece and the daily mail have the right to criticize gabo mate they have the right to criticize harry and like i said there might even be stuff that um, you know, listeners would agree with the mail on, even some listeners who support Harry. Uh, needless to say, though, um, God, it must be a drag, mustn't it? Like, imagine being Harry. It's like every new person you meet, anytime you bring a new person into your life, even in a way, I'm sure that interview with Gabo Mate was probably brokered by Penguin Random House. Uh, Mate was also promoting his book, uh, which is also published by uh, PHR, by the same publisher. So, you know, honestly, like he, I don't even know how much contact outside of that one interview Harry has had with this bloke. Um, and they got straight in there, got straight stuck into the guy and started pulling him to pieces. Um, and J.R. Murringer, who was Harry's ghostwriter for Spare, complained about this kind of thing as well. Um, I think he felt he got pummeling and it, like it must be hard for, for for Harry and Meghan. It must also be hard for celebrities who potentially might actually like them and might actually be interested in doing something with them, but might just be a bit reticent of uh, of what will come of a partnership. Like you know, do they actually just do they want the hassle? Like, is it worth the hassle to get involved in, with Harry and Meghan, knowing that the Daily Mail? basically going to give you both barrels over any cough and sneeze from uh, from any interview or partnership that you do on that note one more quick break but before i do a reminder to follow me on twitter i'm at jack underscore royston you will find all my latest stories for newsweek and when i'm back the royals have waded into the most or probably no i'm going to say the most controversial subject in international relations and that is the israeli-palestinian conflict so more on that in just a moment delve into the shadows of the mind with sleeping dogs a gripping murder mystery starring academy award winner russell crowe now available on digital Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the show. Now, I like to think that Royal News and indeed the Royal Report podcast can at times serve as light relief in what, let's be honest, is 
an increasingly depressing world. Um, Sometimes, though, of course, uh, the royals do get caught up in the biggest and even some of the most upsetting issues of the day, and very little that's going on in the world is as upsetting as the situation in Israel and Gaza. I want to talk about the differences between how different royal family members responded, basically, because there are differences, and I think that that is quite interesting. Um, But first, some background. So Hamas crossed the southern border between Israel and the Gaza Strip on October the 7th and opened fire on Israeli civilians, including at a music festival. It was the deadliest Palestinian militant attack on Israel in its history. Israel then launched its biggest ever bombing campaign in the Gaza Strip. As of Monday, August 16, at least 1,400 people had been killed in Israel and at least 2,778 people had been killed in Gaza, according to the Associated Press. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said his country is at war and has cut off supplies of food, fuel, electricity and medicine into Gaza. Uh, He has vowed to demolish Hamas. So that's the backdrop. Now, one thing that's interesting... Uh, in the response of different royal family members, is they actually kept a protocol, including Harry and Meghan. So King Charles was the first to release a statement, followed by William and Kate, and then Harry and Meghan. So in other words, they did it in order of succession, which is the kind of old-school royal protocol for things like this. The king's supposed to respond first, followed by the next in line, and so on. So perhaps that was just a coincidence. Maybe Harry and Meghan wanted a little bit longer to draw up their statement. Maybe they, you know, weren't sure exactly what to say yet or whether to say anything at all. Um, Or alternatively, maybe they were so acutely aware that this is just the kind of issue that can really trigger a backlash that they just wanted to make sure they did everything by the book. Who knows? We will probably never know. Now, the content of the three different statements differed as well. So let's start with the king. A spokesperson for Charles and Camilla said, This is a situation His Majesty is extremely concerned about, and he has asked to be kept actively updated. His thoughts and prayers are with all of those suffering, particularly those who have lost loved ones, but also those actively involved. His Majesty is appalled by and condemns the barbaric acts of terrorism in Israel. So next came William and Kate. Kensington Palace said the Prince and Princess of Wales are profoundly distressed by the devastating events that have unfolded in the past few days. The horrors inflicted by Hamas's terrorist attack upon Israel are appalling. They utterly condemn them. As Israel exercises its right of self-defence, all Israelis and Palestinians will continue to be stalked by grief, fear and anger in the time to come. Their Royal Highnesses hold all the victims, their families and their friends in their hearts and minds. Those the Prince of Wales met in 2018, that's a 2018 tour which saw him go to both Israel and also the West Bank. Um, So those the Princess of Wales met in 2018 overwhelmingly shared a common hope, that of a better future. In the midst of such terrible suffering, the Prince and Princess continue to share that hope without reservation. And finally, a statement on Harry and Meghan's website read, At the Archwell Foundation, with Prince Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, we stand against all acts of terrorism and brutality. We are supporting our partners and organisations on the front lines in Israel to provide the urgent aid needed and to help all innocent victims of this unconscionable level of human suffering. Now, the key difference between these three statements is that Prince William is the only royal who actually mentioned the Palestinians. To recap, he said, As Israel exercises its right to self-defence, all Israelis and Palestinians will continue to be stalked by grief, fear and anger in the time to come. 
Now, the other thing that's unique about Prince William is that he's the only one who's been out there, not just to Israel, because Charles has been to Israel in personal capacity, but William is the only royal to visit the West Bank. He's not been to the Gaza Strip. The Gaza Strip and the West Bank are uh, geographically different than they're not actually connected. Uh, the West Bank is just to the east of Israel and the Gaza Strip is in the southwest. But he um, he has been to the West Bank and the William and Kate statement is the only one that also pivots from the immediate tragedy to the long-term picture. Namely, as described in the statement, he talks about hope for a better future, which feels like a nod to kind of the hope for a lasting peace. So Harry and Meghan's was condemnation with active assistance to groups in Israel. So we're doing something. Charles was condemnation with prayers and an active desire to be informed. So as in, you know, he's kind of got a hold of this issue. He wants to know about it. He's not ignoring it. Um, And the king said his thoughts and prayers were with all those suffering. Um, Harry and Meghan took a stand against all acts of terrorism and brutality. And they also said, talked about organizations on the front line in Israel to provide the urgent aid needed and to help all innocent victims of this unconscionable level of human suffering. So they've kind of all used the word all, but William was the only one who actually, and Kate, sorry, were, were the only two who actually mentioned the Palestinians. Um, with Harry and Meghan's, it kind of does feel like they're talking, even when they say all, it kind of feels like they're talking about Israel. Well, they are. Um, on paper. So they've not done anything to kind of indicate that they want to talk beyond the initial attack in Israel. Um, Charles also doesn't say anything to firmly ground his comments beyond the kind of victims within the borders of Israel, but he does kind of say all those suffering, which is quite a kind of open-ended statement. Now, listeners will, of course, I'm sure, make their own minds up about who they think did it best. Um, But I just wanted to highlight that those are the actual differences between the way that different royal family members addressed this. And on that note, it is obviously an incredibly, incredibly sad and tragic situation. And I sincerely hope that it is resolved as soon as possible. And that is it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join me every week when I visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. Thanks for listening, everyone, and a curtsy to you all.